0: Really, what you're doing in that, in your mind in that moment is you're taking on that glory for yourself. And Polycarp was glorifying the Lord. Why choose Christ? Because the alternative is death. That's all there is. Welcome to the Reach College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gass. Kaepernick, how do you say it? Kaepernick? Colin Kaepernick. He made the news this week. I don't know if you saw it. He uh, he made a, he's, he's promoting a new graphic novel that talks about how racist his parents are. Uh, these are the parents that adopted him, by the way. Um, so, kind of for me, a hard argument to make, um, but I thought it was interesting, because obviously there's a lot of cultural pressure on uh, that kind of narrative, right, like, to like he, he has, um, you know, these white parents, right, and so he's been told, like, by the culture, like, there, there has to be some kind of problem there, there has to be something wrong there, and he eventually kind of, apparently, has gone that way, and he said, well, they, you know, they were really, the word he used, my, one of my favorite words, he called him problematic, right, Um, it's really interesting to watch somebody kind of stare the the people that literally, I mean, adoption's like a whole nother world, right? Like that's not even just you were born to these people, like naturally, like they came and got you, right? And took you in and raised you and you became an incredibly successful or somewhat successful NFL player, right? So there's, (laughs) there's like that side of things. And then you have, on the other side, I don't know if any of you have ever heard uh, Little Wayne tell his story, but Little Wayne has an entire story about how uh, he was like, I I can't remember if he was, was why, but he was like bleeding to death or uh, he was dying, and a bunch of police were in this room that he was in, and one police officer like stopped, like got him, took care of him, like would not leave his side, would not stop doing what he was doing until Little Wayne's... Life got saved, right? And if you've heard Little Wayne tell his story in recent years, he's taken a ton of heat because it's not just a, I mean, it's a white police officer, right? And so he is saying, well, I love this man. Like that, that man took the time to, to stop for me and, and save me, right? And Little Wayne will not like veer from that reality that he loves this man who saved his life. Uh, no matter how much pressure or bad press he takes, because that's what he that's what he gets for it, right? He gets a lot of this cultural pressure. Now, I'm not specifically trying to highlight necessarily like the race aspect of it. My point is more that you see a difference here between somebody who was taken in and essentially has disowned the people that took them in and like denied them, and then somebody else who is so grateful and sees so much that, 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 that they were saved, their very life was saved, that no matter how much pressure they take, no matter what happens to them, they will not turn on that person. They will not say anything except, I love this person. I care about this person. Uh, I don't know if any of you remember this. There was this old commercial, it was an advertisement for asthma. I'm not sure, like or for like, awareness or medication, I'm not sure. But yeah, like, they'll not like go get <laughs> asthma, but like, you know, but it was literally just a fish, like a goldfish, like flopping around, uh, out of water. And you, and they had a little kid's voice talking about how he feels when he gets an asthma attack. Right? And, and it was just, that's all it was. It was just this fish flopping around and this kid's voice just being like, uh, like when I get an asthma attack, it feels like I'm suffocating and blah, blah. Well, I, I've never had asthma, but, from what I understand, it just feels when you get an asthma attack, it feels like severe suffocation, and uh, I mean, you, you can die from it uh, if, if you have it bad enough. But it's kind of this. There's this process you go through in an asthma attack where you're trying, you're trying to get some air, and you can even get like little amounts of it, and it, especially depending on how badly you have it, you can, maybe you can. Some people don't need an inhaler, for instance. I was thinking about that concept, and. The idea that that was formulating my head is like, our life without God, like just the lives we live in our day-to-day existence on earth, it's kind of like suffocating. Because when God separates himself from you, that's more vital to you, by the way, than air, than water, than food. Like you need God. And so when he's separated from you, it's like you're suffocating. As long as you're alive, there's common grace around us. The grace that you aren't already in hell, right, is grace. And to that extent, it's almost like you're catching little, little bits of air. When you get saved, it's almost like somebody gives you an inhaler, and now you have Jesus, and you can actually breathe again, and you can stop the the suffocation, right? But it comes comes back every now and again, right? It's not perfective. And then heaven would be like, issue settled, no more asthma, right? Now now you just breathe. Perfectly, right? But this idea is that that almost like we are suffocating in this life before we're saved and even periodically once we're saved, right? Because we're not perfected yet. For a Christian, being told to deny Christ is kind of like a fish being told to deny water. That fish, I always remember that fish in that commercial because it's flopping around suffocating. And it really gets the point across, like, I'm sorry if you have asthma because I think that would be terrible, right? Like, there's there's something going on there that would be, you have a panic attack along with the fact that you're suffocating, right? And that really is a great analogy for life without Christ. Panic-induced, life-ending suffocation and desperation, right? And so, in, in, the, in the mindset of this idea of being pressured and denying somebody who loved you and saved you, Christians have been loved and saved by Jesus in a way that if it's real to them, there's no amount of pressure. There's no amount of consequence that they can deny, just like no fish would ever be like, you know, I really hate this water. I really don't want to be in this. Not, not only that, You would never look at a fish flopping around on the ground, out of water, dying, and be like, look at how free it is. Freest fish I've ever seen. Not trapped in that water. Like, you would know that that fish is dying, right? And that is essentially what we're being told to do by the world, is deny the very thing that lets us breathe. Now, you can say, like, well, it's, you know, you're contained or whatever. Okay, fine. Change the analogy a bird denying flying, I, whatever it is, like is, we're free in Christ. We're free to actually do what we were meant to do, to live according to the way that we were designed to live, to breathe right. That's what happens when you get Christ. In 1943, Dietrich Bonhoeffer went to prison in Germany. Part of the reason he went to prison is because he was implicated in some plots against the Nazi regime. And the other reason he went to prison is because he was a part of what was called the Confessing Church. If you don't know, Hitler came in, right, came to power in Germany, and he established a state church, and a lot of churches just kind of folded to it. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he joined up with the Confessing Church that said, allegiance to Hitler is idolatry. We don't worship Hitler, we worship Jesus, right? Well, obviously, a lot of those Christians were killed. Well, Bonhoeffer... Uh, he was well-known for a term called cheap grace or a notion that he called cheap grace. And I want to read you this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go sell all that he has. In 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed by Hitler. Hitler personally ordered him hung. Three weeks later, Hitler would kill himself. Bonhoeffer was three weeks from making it past the war, and he didn't get there. He was killed for the cause of Christ. And Bonhoeffer's last words were this. This is the end for me. The beginning of life. He faced death and he realized. He was finally going to breathe free air. And he was never going to suffocate again. Last week. We saw that Paul talks about this idea of walking or acting in the newness of life. And that. Walking and acting, I told you we've transitioned in Romans to sanctification. Not justification, not the moment that you're made right with Christ, but sanctification, the process of being more and more like Christ your entire life. And that is where we are in chapter 6 right now. This week, Paul's going to say you are bound to something. You are bound to something, and that something has a definitive outcome. Whatever you're bound to, it's going somewhere specific. It's not up in the air, it's not a gamble, it's going somewhere specific. And your actions can tell you which outcome you're headed for. Why choose Jesus is the question today. And I want to say to you that why choose Jesus is like asking a fish why it would choose water. Because choosing Jesus is the only way to live is the only way to be alive and to get breath. Paul is going to start by saying you are bound to something, either sin or righteousness, but there's no third option. Look at Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Far from it. Do you not know that the one whom you that the one to whom you present yourselves as slaves for obedience? you are slaves of that same one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. So last week, if you look at verse 1, we we started with a similar version of the same question. Verse 1, it was, should we keep sinning so that grace can increase? And we figured out that Paul's saying, okay, it's not actually increasing, but the more sin you have, the more you realize that grace is bigger, right? But But that's not an excuse to keep sinning. Right. And then he's continuing that theme. And this week he says, sin, uh, you shouldn't sin just because you're not under the law, because you're not held down by the law. So I want to clear up something about the law. The law is not kept by you, Christian or not. It's not something that you can accomplish and keep. It is a measuring rod or a weight. It's a weight or measuring rod on, on non, on unbelievers. That shows them how short they fall of God, how short they fall of Christ. It th- for uh, for a non-believer, it is only to oppress them that they cannot accomplish holiness by themselves. And then when we look at the law through the through the eyes of a believer, it has a, it has a different effect. For a believer, that same measuring uh, measuring rod is to show us what Christ has already done. So you're still not the one keeping the law. He kept the law. You see him measuring up to the law, and then you respond to that by ingratitude, by being like him, by mimicking him, by not denying him. The measurement is actually, it's not really a measurement of your actions. That's how we typically look at it, but it's a measurement of your heart's affections unbelievers love sin Non-believers love sin I I want to explain this to you do you see that the world's effort is to get sin approved that's the whole point no everyone out there is taking their sin and it's not enough that you let them go do their thing they want you to tell them it's okay they want you to tell them that their sin is good you see how that's different why? What do they need? Because they have this measuring rod that God has placed in front of all of humanity that they can't measure up to. They look at it and they go, well, that makes me feel bad about myself. Good. That's kind of the point. Because then you will respond to what Christ has done. It's in order to save you, right? It's not just to guilt trip you because God just wants you to be miserable. It's actually trying to keep you from being miserable by trying to accomplish the law on your own. Believers, instead of loving their sin and trying to justify it, believers love Christ, who kept the law, and so we act like him. What you love is what you're bound to. What you love is what you will act like. Now, I want to clarify, I always feel the need to talk about this because we get this so, um, we get so nervous about this in our culture. There's a difference between living in sin and stumbling in sin, okay? Okay you are always going to stumble in sin. Okay, Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms. Now, I want to explain that. That phrase is a little interesting. What he's saying is, he's using this slavery analogy, and we get in all kinds of tension about that, especially because Paul's cultural context for the word slavery is not the same as our cultural context for the word slavery. It's, It's similar, but it's not the same. And really the point is this. The reason he says he's speaking in human terms is because slavery to God, which is a term he's going to repeat in this passage, slavery to God is like saying a, a fish is slave to water, right? Like, it, 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 may okay, sure, the fish is contained in water, and that's where it's going to live its best life, right? That's where it's going to breathe and be happy, and good things are going to happen, right? So it, I want, he's, he's acknowledging the weakness of our ability to even understand what's going on, and the fact that we have to use a term that is, by definition a consequence of sin. Slavery was not in the Garden of Eden, right? Slavery is uh, our, uh, a result of our fallen humanity. That has created uh, slavery. And so Paul is acknowledging that this analogy is a, is a human invention in the first place and really a negative one at that, right? But he's, he's trying to show you how slavery to God is actually what you're meant for. It's the thing that lets you be a fish in water, So then again, it, we saw last week he said this idea of presenting your body parts, presenting yourself to sin or presenting yourself to God. And he's going to say, uh, he, he's going to say that each act results in like kind. So if you act in lawlessness, you get more lawlessness. And if you act in righteousness, you get sanctification. And then we're going to go back. So that's, that's 19, right? It's kind of the end of this. But in verse 17, he says, thanks be to God who is sanctifying you. Okay, I want you to to see this. When God saves you, he also promises that you will. You will be like Christ. Like you will continue your entire life to move towards Christ's likeness, and on the last day, it will be completed. Now, we don't all move at the same rate. We don't all start at the same place. That's not the point. God has promised that you will move towards Christ's likeness if you're his child. Now, why is that important? Because if you're not moving towards Christ-likeness, you'd need to ask some hard questions. Because God is the one doing it. He is the one filling you with His Spirit and changing you day by day by day and evidencing to you that you are a new creation. That you are becoming Christ-like. So, he says that that you were given to obedience from your heart. Right? And then... He even says, this is, I want you to catch this, the language here. He says, you were given in obedience to the teaching, right? He's talking about the gospel, but he's not saying that you were given the gospel. He's saying you were given to the gospel, right? So in the same way that you were given to your sin, now you've been given to the teaching, to the gospel. In the same way that your heart loved your sin, now your heart loves the gospel. And this, this is important because then he's able to say, this sanctification is what changes your heart and gives you to the gospel. That changing of your heart is what performs these actions. These actions are what result in like kind, lawlessness, or sanctification, and those results show you where you're headed, right? So this is, this is an entire construct where he's saying the Holy Spirit is changing you and your actions reveal that changing and where you're going. So, if the part you can see, which is your actions, doesn't match where you want to be going, or that the Holy Spirit's changing you, again, you need to ask some hard questions. Right now, it, it's not an automatic that you're not saved. It's not an automatic that you're not saved. But there's there's two realities here. It 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 might be an automatic that you need repentance and confession in your life. You might be stuck in a sin that you've even justified and you've accepted that you need to get out of, that you need to repent of. And the reason the Holy Spirit, or the reason that the Bible never tells us, rest on that prayer you prayed when you were seven, is because when you're stuck in that sin, the only way out of it is to look at it and go, if I live in this, there's a chance I'm not even a Christian. That is a good thing, because that reality of looking at that sin is what causes you to repent and confess and come back to God and walk like a fish in water, right? To be where you can breathe again to be where you are breathing clean air, right? Okay, I got it. Walk like a fish in water. Get over it. (laughs) All of you are hilarious. (laughs) Um, And then he says, and I want you to see this, that the greater you understand the gospel, the greater your reaction to the gospel will be. The greater that you understand what God has done for you, the more you will react to it. That is what sanctification is. When you you are receiving grace and understanding grace, you can't help but want to mimic Jesus. Right? Why choose Jesus? Because once you've experienced saving grace, there's no going back. It's too good. It's like now that fish... Is in water and wants to be back on land. That's what it that's what it would be like for you to go back to sin. Right? And so the reality, and that's where the, the question comes in. Either you never you were never in the water in the first place, or or the desire to be out of it is unhealthy and impossible. Should be impossible. That's what the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you against. What is what, what does it mean then to be bound to death? So in AD 155, Polycarp was brought before the Roman proconsul to be killed. Now, I want you guys to hear this conversation because this is one of the great all time martyrdom conversations. Polycarp was given the, answer, uh, given the opportunity to say, Take away the atheist. Now, I want you to understand that phrase. In the first century of Roman, or first and second century of Roman uh, Christianity, they were accused of being atheists. Because they believed in a man as God and they didn't believe in the pantheon of Roman gods. So the two things combined led to kind of a, if you will, like a slanderous, you know, media news cycle that was like, Christians don't even believe in God, they're atheists, right? And so he was brought before the Roman proconsul and they said, say, take away these atheists and we'll, you know, we'll let you live, meaning the Christians. Well, Polycarp looks at the Roman crowd that worships the pantheon and goes, take away all these atheists, right? So immediately, He's like fighting back, right? And then he is told, reproach Christ, reproach Christ, and you'll live. And he says, for 86 years, I have served him and he's done me no wrong. How could I blaspheme the king who has saved me? Then he's told, swear to Caesar, swear to Caesar and you'll live. And he says, I don't think you're listening. I am a Christian, this is like real stuff, right? He, he literally just, he's like, I, I, let's, let's quit beating around the bush. I'm a Christian. I will not swear to Caesar. Then he's told, if you don't do this, we're going to bring out the wild beasts. Repent, or I'm going to let the wild beasts tear you apart. And he says, call them, for I cannot repent from what is better to what is worse. <laughs> like, this is an incredible moment. And then he's told, we're going to light you on fire. And he said, you threaten me with the fire that burns for an hour and is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire coming for judgment on the ungodly. Church history tradition says that Polycarp wasn't even nailed to the stake to be burned because he told them he would stand still. So they put him on the pyre, they lit the fire, and the tradition in church history is that the fire would not catch him. It burned around him, and it wouldn't light him on fire. And they finally stabbed him with a spear, and they said his blood put the fire out around him. Polycarp had experienced grace, and he couldn't go back. He couldn't possibly deny the God who had saved him. Christians don't have anything to gain by denying Christ because we've already been promised eternity. What can you possibly give us to turn from our God? Polycarp went to his death bound to Christ. You guys realize that sin, when you live a sin lifestyle, that lifestyle is denying Christ. It's spitting in the face of your Savior. Even that action alone is to choose the things that suffocate you. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves, to, slaves of sin, you were free in relation to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. Free in relationship to righteousness. I want to explain that phrase. If there's no God, why have any morality? Like, what's the, what's the point of doing... I've never understood atheists having any reason to be good people. Because who cares? If, li- if, if you die and it just turns into black abyss, might as well get as many good feelings on earth as you possibly can. Whatever that means for you, just go for it. Because why not? right? He's saying that because you didn't follow God, why would you need to follow his rules? Why would you, what are you reacting to? You haven't been saved. You haven't been redeemed. You haven't been bought with blood. You have no reason to act in righteousness. You're free from it essentially. And then he says, but what benefit does it get you? What benefit are the actions of unrighteousness? It binds you to death. Listen, Sin tries to kill you, both physically and spiritually. Let's talk about this. Spiritual death is, is by, by, by far and away the most important one. The reality is when you live in sin, you are separated from God. That separation from God is, again, the fish out of water. person suffocating. But if you die and you've never been reconciled to God, you've never been redeemed and received that grace... You die in this separation, and you get to suffocate for all of eternity. You get to be separated from God forever. Right? That's what sin is doing to you spiritually. But sin is also trying to kill you physically. I, I'm not going to go through you know, every way, but if you walk down the road of a single sin pat- pattern long enough, eventually it will actually try to take your life. I mean, it's easy to think through this with things like drugs and alcohol but there's many more sins that at the beginning of the path look harmless but if you let them take you all the way down that road they will ruin your life and sometimes take your life sin is trying to kill you and i want you to think about it like this there's ways that we sin in what's bad and sin in what we would what's really maybe neutral but we would think is good right so sinning in what's bad is the things that make us miserable right like here's the deal we're we're a young adult classroom. So we're going to talk about serious issues. The reality is that there, there are probably multiple of you in this room that are struggling with pornography. And I, and and no one in the history of pornography has ever finished using it and gone, "Wow, I feel like that was a productive use of my time. I feel much better. I'm a, a, a whole person now." Like it never. You get done with that, and what do you feel like? Gross and ashamed and terrible. First of all, let's talk about how that's grace from God because if, if it only provided you fulfillment, why would you ever stop? Right? But the reality is it's draining on you. It's miserable. Right? That's what sin does to us when we know it's bad. Now let's talk about what sin does when we think it's not bad, right? We can idolize things that are typically not bad. Like, do you need, is money evil? Like, it's not evil. We inherently need money to a certain extent to pay our bills and eat food. But if you make money the point, if you idolize it, it it still won't fulfill you. It just makes you miserable in a more long-term and deceitful way. you like, well, I need money. Like You don't need as much as you think you do. We serve a God who has access to all the money in the world. But we idolize these things, and they drain us. We do this... We're talking about this class we do this with dating. We do this with marriage. Listen, there are plenty of unhappy people in marriage. Why is it just like it, it, the lie in everyone's head is like if I just get married then everything would just click and be good. Like there's so many people in ha- unhappy marriages. Why? I'm not dogging on marriage. I'm marriage is a good thing. I'm saying just getting married is not an automatic, oh, it's now everything's just grand, everything's great. Life is bliss especially if you don't handle that process correctly. The reality is that sin makes us miserable. It leaves us unfulfilled. Now, as a side note, as a caveat, if you want to know how to get out of a sin that you are stuck in, the answer is is accountability and confession. Everyone in this room who has started seeing success and victory, who has started breaking free of a sin, will tell you, that it was because they finally stopped suffering with it alone in the darkness and in shame. They started telling people. They started experiencing grace in real time. Because when you tell your brother or sister in Christ and they look you in the face and they go, I understand. It's okay. God still loves you. He wants you to get out of this. And all of a sudden you go, wait, I'm not cast out. I'm not a pariah. Or how about this one? 99 times out of 100. I'm really struggling with this thing. Wow, I struggled with that too. Wait, What? because we think we're the only person in the world with that sin Like, there's like a limited number of sins you guys <laughs> like, like we're, we're all struggling with the same stuff but if you will tell each other that is how you find freedom okay another thing I want to touch on what's the difference between the victimhood mentality in our culture and what I'm talking about today with martyrs the difference is that the victimhood culture is about me being a martyr is about Jesus. It's about loving him so much, I won't deny him even unto my death. That is not the same as poor me, poor me, look at me, give me attention, give me things. It's not the same thing. Christians are not called to be victims. We're also not called to chase martyrdom. We can glorify, you can even glorify and idolize being a martyr. Is Polycarp's story absolutely amazing? Yes. And every single one of us should pray to God that if we're in that situation we can have the spirit-filled strength that that man had. But if you think you're going to get there and just breeze by because really what you're doing in in your mind in that moment is you're taking on that glory for yourself. And Polycarp was glorifying the Lord. Why choose Christ? Because the alternative is death. That's all there is. In A.D. 165, Justin Martyr Martyr was killed during Marcus Aurelius' reign. You know, the guy from Gladiator. He was beheaded, and one of the things that he wrote in defense of Christianity before he was beheaded was, you can kill us, but you cannot do us any real harm. The Bible says, why do we fear men? who can only kill the body when we should fear God who has the power to destroy the soul. If your priorities are straight, death is not the scariest thing. That's why I love love that first quote. This is the end for me, the beginning of life. Because he realized, Bonhoeffer realized, I'm about to be in real life. This is, is not real life this is the prequel and I give it a C rating at best like 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 your life is going to be better which is why you don't have to spend all your time here just trying to achieve and get and, and make something of yourself you need to be a certain kind of person that's what all of these men by the world standards all three of these guys I mentioned today they were failures They got murdered. That's not success in the world's eyes. But you know what is success in God's eyes? The kind of men they were that were willing to die for their Savior. That was success. Look at verse 22. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are bound to something. And if you're bound to death, you're bound to be miserable. But now, you can be free to be in sanctification. And sanctification, is its outcome is eternal life. That's where it's headed. I'm talking about this idea about being a certain kind of person. What is sanctification? Sanctification is not the process by which God produces achievements for you. Sanctification is the process by which you become a certain kind of person, Christ like. What is the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is not college degree, wife and three kids, dream job, six figures. Like, the fruit of the Spirit are character traits. Christ-like character traits. You can accomplish nothing on the world's stage and be Christ-like and God is pleased with you. And by the way, you'll actually be fulfilled because the world doesn't provide that, doesn't have that fulfillment. Now, I'm not saying that if you follow Jesus, you'll never achieve anything. What I'm saying is that if you follow Jesus, you'll make it about being like him and there's no achievement that will replace the fulfillment that comes from walking with Christ. It won't be the point. It won't be the thing that you're chasing. It will be there will be a byproduct in your life. You will see achievement. But even then, your your bar for achievement will change. You know what I'm achieving now that I see in my life? Christ likeness. That is what I, that's what I want to see in an achievement is growth in how I am in Christ, not, not whatever, you know, temporal award I can hang on my wall or number I can have in my bank account. It's about how much like Christ I am. We can't help but want righteousness and hate sin if we've experienced grace. And the outcome of that is eternal life. I want you to think again about this idea of the law. I started here, I'm going to end here. Think about this idea of the law. If there was a law for, for husbands that was don't, don't abuse your wife, right? We, we'd see the law and we could immediately tell something about the hearts of men with two different responses. The man who looked at that and said, why would I ever abuse my wife? I love her. And the man who said, well, too bad they made a rule about it. I guess I won't do it now. What? What's in that man's heart? Malice? Hatred? Anger? Pride? Like, that guy is only not doing something because they made a rule. That guy's not responding because of who he is. That's why Jesus... I, I always bring this up to you guys, because that's why Jesus shows up and says, oh, you, you, you've heard don't murder but you look at people with hatred. You're just not murdering because it's a rule. You've you've heard don't, don't commit adultery, but you look at women and you lust after them. Like, there's no difference because God is looking into your heart seeing what kind of person you are. In verse 23, he says, the payout, the wages, the payout, the thing you get from sin is misery. But the unearned gift of God is life in jesus life in jesus not go to heaven jesus just kind of there heaven is because you're with jesus my favorite philosopher of all time is uh soren Kierkegaard. soren Kierkegaard is a uh, man he was a uh, really unnoticed danish philosopher for a long time um the german philosopher christian philosophers picked him up first and then americans kind of discovered him uh through the German philosophers, and when they discover him, right, they start reading his, his philosophy, and philosophy gets a bad rap in um, Christian circles because uh, a lot of philosophy veers off of biblical truth. But Kierkegaard's philosophy is solely based on loving Christ. Like, that's all he cared about. That's all he wrote about. It's funny, too, if you read what he was fighting against most of the time, it sounds a lot like America, because he's basically fighting this apathetic, I go to church and that makes me a Christian mentality which means it's not just us. And so he literally is, uh, he's got these beautiful works where he is basically just breaking down Christian, uh, Christian concepts in ways that are easier for us to understand. And one of the things he does is he says that all existence, all existence is in relation to its cause, to its creator, to God, right? So God is what, everything in all of existence is relating to. There's nothing in all of creation that doesn't form its identity based off its relationship to God. Everything. And he says sin is wanting to be something that's not in relationship to God or being upset because you can't stop being in relationship to God. Now I want you to understand that word relationship. You can have a Enemy kind of relationship with something, right? Like, I'm not, relationship doesn't necessarily connotate good. You can have a bad relationship. The point is, you have a relationship to God. Friend or foe. And Kierkegaard was saying that sin was this, this tearing away from that relationship, trying to get out of it. Or being mad about being in it. Even a negative one. You're in this enemy relationship to God and you're just mad that you have to be enemies with Him. Or friends. You just don't want anything to do with them. That is, sin is just this tearing away from this relationship with God. Well, hell is a granted separation. Hell is God saying, you don't want to be in relationship with me, so I'm going to put you here. But here's the catch. Even hell is a place that has a relationship with God. His absence from it. And it is therefore miserable... But even in hell, you can't get away from the reality that you have some sort of identity based on who God is. It's like the fish being angry about being in water. It's like choosing a never-ending asthma attack. If you walked up to a fish walked up to a fish and you put a gun to its head and said, renounce water. It wouldn't be like, yeah, that's cool. That's why they fight so hard when you get them on the hook. Because if you pull them out of the water, they're immediately dying. Are you choosing Jesus? The question today really is this. What are you renouncing Christ for? Because in some small way, We're all renouncing Christ for some action, for some lifestyle, for some behavior. And our relationship to God, the relationship that Christians have to God, is one of repentance. Because repentance is what allows us to continue to walk in a good relationship to Him. I want you guys to think today about the examples we see in church history. If you have never heard of it, Go look up Fox's Book of Martyrs. It is just chock full of people who experienced the grace of God in such a way that they couldn't go back. No matter what.